Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. For Peter comes down out of the ship as often as any holy man descends from the heart of the church where he has been educated. And then he goes with pious sympathy to them that are without the church, that he may show them the way of salvation. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We are going way back to the 11th century. You don't, you never hear people say the thousands. That's like where my brain will default to is like, by just saying, you know, the 1900s or the 1800s. But the thousands is an odd one to say. I feel like the 11th century, it rolls off the tongue a little bit more. We're listening to a sermon by Anselm. So we're going back far back to England. Joel, we are going back almost just shy of a thousand years for this one. I love episodes with people from way far back. Uh, We've done episodes by Gregory of Nazianzus. We've done episodes Gregory of Nyssa, if you want the other Gregory, Pope Gregory the Great, uh, St. Augustine, uh, Basil and Chrysostom. These really old people that you got to remember a lot of them, we think of them as theologians today or think of them as early church heroes, but they were also pastors and preachers. They were giving sermons to their congregations. And to be able to listen to some of those sermons and, you know, for a second, at least try to kind of put yourself in their shoes. It's really cool. I think it's a really fun uh, thing to listen to. But with with these older sermons, we always ask the audience to be patient and uh, remember that this sermon is extremely old so that it may not sound exactly like you expect a sermon to listen to, but it is just really cool. The thing that always stands out to me with these sermons, the thing I love about these sermons is how solid our faith is, how much uh, just faithful preaching and going to church has been a thing for so long, and the, the story and the message really has not changed. But anyway, this one is about a thousand years old. And I, I again, too, think of how much we didn't know about the world a thousand years ago. I mean, these people had no knowledge of North and South America. These people, of course, had no phones. They didn't even have a printing press yet. I mean, things were just very, very different. But they still were able to encourage their people in the faith, to encourage them to walk closer to God. And when I listen to their sermons, that's what I walk away from, too. Even though they're, they're from a completely different world than myself, I still walk away very encouraged listening to them. I think you will too. Yeah, I don't think we have anything from this century, the thousands, the no. 11, you know, the eleven hundred eleventh century. I think this is the first one in no. that time slot. Yeah, the thing. closest to this one. This is the first one in this slot. The closest to this one was we had Aquinas from the twelve hundreds, and then we had Boniface's sermon from the seven hundreds. So, like, this is a really tough gap like of years to find oh, yeah. sermons for because just a lot of the people who either they're not very good they're like really hardcore about like you know praising mary sermons or um because this is like the height of the catholic church in some ways or they're just they're not really well kept and so you know because people like the old stuff for the defenses of the trinity but this era from like 600 to 1300 or so is really tough to find good reliable uh faithful preachers and sermons that we can enjoy so i always am excited when i can find some of these medieval sermons because and that's a really long time period 700 years i mean finding sermons from the 1800s from awesome preachers is pretty easy but finding sermons from this time 
time period is always a challenge. And so I was really excited when I found this one by Anselm. There are a few sermons of his out there, but honestly, again, most people don't even remember or even maybe know that he was preaching sermons and was teaching from the, you know, the pulpit of their time uh, quite frequently. Yeah, yeah, because he's mostly known as, would you say, a philosopher? For in, sure. In like, today's recollection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I learned about him in philosophy class even before I went to Bible college. And of course, um, he was important in apologetics and stuff, which we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But that's what he's known for is, you know, philosophy, theology. You, uh, So many of these guys are known for theology and philosophy that you completely forget that Sunday to Sunday, people were showing up to, you know, hear church. Yeah, and I, I'm excited to get into the sermon. As Troy mentioned, you know, be patient with it because it is different. And, and you know, the, the way that he's approaching the Bible here is a little bit different. Even our, uh, the Ken Chipchase, the narrator for the sermon today, he was talking to us and he said, you know, I take issue with some of the hermeneutics here, but by the end of it, you know, he was really encouraged and he was really, uh, yeah, encouraged by the message and what it meant. And it's something that a lot of us maybe wouldn't have taken the time to, to look into on our own accord. But now that Troy and I are here in your ears, uh, give it a listen. And again, you're, you're probably hopefully going to come away with something encouraging. Anselm, and I apologize if I mispronounce it throughout the course of this episode, it most, most certainly will happen at some point. Anselm, big name in church, big name in world history, just in general. He was raised in Upper Burgundy, which was a, a part that was in France. Now it's in Italy. So we're thinking that part of the world, right? And growing up, he really wanted to be a monk from an early age. That was his, you know, you ask uh, kids what they want to be, and they'll say an astronaut or a firefighter. Anselm would have said, I want to be a monk. But his dad was opposed to this. He refused to, to let him pursue that path at all. And doing research for this episode, there's multiple sources that, that said that being sick somehow would get you into a, a monastery. And I don't know if that's like for treatment, like the, the monks would treat you, or if that's like a, a, a safe haven for like you could work as a disabled person or something. I'm not entirely sure, but Anselm wanted to be in the monastery so bad that he prayed fervently for God to make him sick so he could get into a monastery. And, you know, whether it was a genuine sickness that fell upon him or whether it was, you know, something psychosomatic where, you know, he, he tricked himself into his body being really sick or thinking he was sick. Any way you think about it, he ended up on the brink of death, very ill. His plan didn't really work, though, however, because the monastery did not let him in. Uh, and as he started to recover from this illness, his mother would pass away. And it looks like he, she might have passed away giving birth to uh, his younger sister. We're not really sure, but it looks like that those might have been related her death and it could have been a childbirth type of thing and it really affected his father his father was devastated by the loss of his wife and his father threw himself into religion at that point a man who previously wasn't terribly religious didn't want his son going into the priesthood uh, found himself repenting of his earlier lifestyle and dedicating it towards uh, religion so much so that anselm found himself turned off to to religion because of this and you know it's kind of interesting that, to see his life and to see what might have been going through his head but this boy who was so fervently uh, dedicated towards joining the monks in the monastery after seeing it the way his father threw himself into religion decided no, no that's actually 
uh, not for me. There was something there that, that he didn't like or something that drove him away from that, that lifestyle. And he actually, around the age 23, he actually kind of went out on, I don't know, I kind of think of it like a, a gap years where he wandered around France and Burgundy for three years, uh, kind of living this carefree life. Uh, he, he was deathly ill. He recovered from that. So he's got a new appreciation for life, uh, no longer wanting to join the priesthood. And so he's he's out living life as a as a twenty three year old. That part's kind of strange to me. You don't normally see medieval people just kind of wandering around. They're usually like living on the fields or living at the palace. Like they usually have a direction. Trying not to die somehow. Yeah, I feel like this is the first time I read about one where he's just kind of like I'm just floating through for a while, having fun, just doing whatever. And I mean, we're probably reading it as more fun than it was. It might have had there there might have been things going on to explain it better. Maybe there was wars or some you know feudal land disputes that explain it a little bit more than we have access to. But to us, it, from my perspective, it, that gap. Here's a good way to describe it. Just felt like he was just kind of traveling and just doing whatever pleased him during that time. Even though he uh, he was wandering around France and Burgundy, he still had a passion and interest in philosophy. He still seemed to have a love of God and learning about God. And so when he heard about a monk from Burgundy like himself who was becoming very famous in Normandy, this kind of part of, of it's in upper France, but it's kind of connected to England. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, he decides to go there to check it out. He just wants to learn more and be able to write and talk about God and, and to grow in his knowledge of God without all the trappings of like life and duties that he had before. So he goes there. He joins the monastery in about 1059, 1060. And by 1063, he was teaching in an integral part of ministry there. He loved writing about and philosophy and thinking about God, um, administrative duties, the clergy work itself. That, that was kind of something he didn't love doing, but he did a kind of submit himself to it would, would do it to because he had to and he trusted that it was the right thing to do but he loved the philosophy the book writing all that stuff when his father died he kind of went back home straightened up some affairs officially now he really has no family ties to keep him from his ministry and so he's 100 percent in at this point and this is when he really begins to start writing he writes uh some of his early works are the mono uh, no pff, don't get mad at me the monologian, mono, monologion, I'm not sure which one of those it is, uh, but it was very heavily influenced by St. Augustine and was a def- kind of defense for the faith, defense for the Trinity too, but again, super influenced by St. Augustine. He even mentioned in the prologue, like this is basically St. Augustine's the Trinity. And then the proslogion, man, I know I said that wrong. I know there are some professors from seminaries not happy with that so sorry what's actually really bad is this is a prayer where he prays through like the attributes of god and i've actually used this paper in my papers like i I remember quoting this book in my papers in seminary and i still don't know how to pronounce it so there we go pretty sure yeah so that not my best work but anyway everything was going pretty well for him until the year 1066 if you know your medieval medieval history uh that's when william the conqueror goes and does everything he does in England, which puts Normandy in this really weird spot because it's now kind of the people running Normandy are running, everything's kind of crazy for a little while for him. And so he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And so that's where he ends up being kind of like, okay, is this the end for me? Do I go somewhere else? What happens next? Yeah, William the Conqueror and this whole political thing didn't have much effect on Anselm himself, except the result of it did help move him into higher ranks in the church. 
right? Not, not that he was necessarily seeking out those ranks, but because of how the church in England was structured and stuff, it, it moved him higher up in the rankings. He was seen as a sincere man, and people liked him and liked his writings. He eventually became seen as kind of the natural successor to a lot of people in a lot of really good positions. At one point, he even gave the rights to the confessions of King Williams II when he was on his death, but he thought he was going to die. He ended up recovering from that. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where when you're on your deathbed, then you want to get right with God and everything like that. And Anselm showed up to hear his confessions and to read him his rights. He was eventually nominated to replace someone in Canterbury. And Canterbury at the time was a big political seat and it was a big deal to get. But the king, after he got better, you know, you have change of heart. Turns out you don't need to be that right with God, right? Uh, and decided that he, he didn't want Anselm in, in that position after all. There's a lot of uh, medieval politics going on here, but essentially uh, Anselm's position at Canterbury there prevented the king from making more money, essentially. And so the king didn't like him in that position because he wasn't being able to get as much money as he could have. And this led to a problem, the investiture controversy. Now, we actually talked about this controversy in our deep dive. It uh, seems impossible to not talk about a sermon and a guy this invested into the era of 1000 to 1100 without mentioning that Joel and I did a deep dive a little over a year ago on the First Crusade. We talked about the church's lack of power in the early century, how it grew to power, how this investiture controversy was a part of that growth and proof of its power where kings thought they could nominate the priests and then by the end of the century, the kings are coming down, bowing down, repenting to the church, begging them for forgiveness and saying, please, please, will you pick the priests? Like it's a huge thing where the church goes from very, very weak to very, very powerful, powerful enough to lead an army of 100,000 soldiers to Jerusalem that episode of all the deep dives we did, I will say that was the episode, I don't know if I'll say that was the craziest one because the Joan of Arc one is absolutely fascinating. The Salem Witch Trials are fascinating too. But the First Crusade was probably the one where I knew the least going into it of what I was going to find. And I was completely shocked just how the church was able to bring 90,000 90, people die getting to Jerusalem and taking it, yet it's considered this gigantic victory for Europe. It is a really fascinating episode, um, and it goes over a lot of this church politics stuff, And but, it, but even more so, there are characters like Peter the Hermit, there are people seeing stars in the sky, there are medieval people running through fires to prove that God's with, it is a wild story that if you've not heard that story, if you don't know the First Crusade, highly encourage you. Join us on Patreon. You can get access to that episode. There's two hours of goodness, uh, access to Joan of Arc, access to the Salem Witch Trials. Listen to those stories. They're some of the most fascinating stories in church history. And I promise you, as you're listening, just over and over again, you're just going to go, how did this happen? Is this real? Is this actually what the story is? And it, and it is. That we tell the stories exactly as the historical data tells you. And then we go through and just ask, what do we think of this, Christians? Like, what, is, what do we think of this as Bible-believing people? How did these things occur? So really encourage you to go check it out. And we talk a lot about the investiture controversy on that episode because it played a lot into how the church became super powerful. One thing I can say about Anselm is 
uh, he, he was not really into political life. He didn't like all this politics stuff. He didn't like this whole, I got to run Canterbury, all that stuff. Like many of our guys from the first millennium, Anselm would have been really okay if he had just been a hermit. He wanted to live by himself, enjoy a quiet, slow, peaceful life of reading and writing philosophy. Anselm would end up getting exiled multiple times, uh, but all the stuff that had to do with his life really centered on his love of philosophy. And that's what he's remembered for today. I, I, he, but I do think it's important to say though, even though he had exiles and he had all these problems, he was beloved by his church. His monks cared about him. When he had to leave from his earlier church to eventually become the head of Canterbury, where he does eventually will become known as Anselm of Canterbury, when he eventually becomes the head of that church, he is super beloved. His old church does not want to let him go because they, they like him so much, they care about him so much that he's their guy. And so Anselm, again, he's a very beloved man. And, and even though we remember him as a philosopher or sometimes we remember him as this tough politicking guy, on the ground, the people that knew him really saw a sincere, devout, very kind, loving guy who who he wasn't just his head in the books. He was also a friend and a good man that they didn't want to let go of. Yeah, and he really seemed genuinely torn, you know, between administrative stuff and his passion for writing. You know, those things were always butting heads. He wanted to write books and philosophy and theology, and he was good at it. And and because he was good at it, it kept getting him promoted. It kept pulling him into higher offices, which kept him from doing the things that he loved to do, kept him from writing books about philosophy and theology. We mentioned uh, Prologian earlier, and that's the book he wrote where the, the famous apologetics argument comes from, the ontological argument uh, that if you've taken a philosophy class, uh, you may have heard it. It's very difficult to summarize in, in a sentence. The, uh, the literal Google definition says that Anselm defined God as that which nothing greater can be conceived. And that's, in my opinion, not a super descriptive or helpful <laughs> definition, but uh, is somewhat accurate, you know, if, if you want to dig more into that. He also wrote other books. He wrote a, a book called Why Did God Become Man, which at the time was one of the biggest theological books on God's atonement. He believed that it was not the devil who God had saved us from, but that God needed the atonement of our sins to come from himself, right? Only a God-man can atone what is owed to God. Before that, many people believed that God was just ransoming us from the devil, almost like an exchange. Yeah, it was almost like the devil had us captive. God, you know, right. tricks him and gives Jesus as the captive and lets some of us out. It's a whole thing. Ta-da! Um, Anselm was also a tough guy. The, he's maybe this rare, I mean, he's actually kind of a rare guy because he's a theological giant, he's a philosophy giant, but he was also loved by his people on the ground. People really liked him that were in his, uh, you know, his monks were big fans of him. They were all gathering around him all the time. But he was also a political giant. You know, if you go, I remember Gregory of Nazianzus, and we looked at some of those guys who were really good at theology, but they were terrible at politics. Like they were getting, you know, their positions taken away from them constantly. Anselm seems to be a lot better than that. He went up against multiple kings over his very long career. He would get exiled a couple of times, but he manages to make it back every time. And he was still at Canterbury. He was still at the top of his game at the end of his life, despite all the exiles, despite going against the Pope, or sorry, going against the kings, despite begging the Pope to relieve him of his duties so he could just go read books and be a hermit. And the Pope being like, nope, nope, we got to keep you where you're at. You're the best there is. At the end of his life, he told the monks at the church he was at that he was, he was ready to die. He's done enough. 
He's good with dying. He, he feels prepared to meet God. This was in the year 1109. But he said, one more thing I got to write down for everybody. I have to answer the question St. Augustine wasn't able to answer. Where did the soul originate from? Just real quick before you die, right, Joel? When you're thinking about your final will and testimony, yeah. you're probably thinking, just I'm going to answer. Just going to answer St. Augustine's never answered question real quick before I die, right? He goes into like the other room to start writing it, but by the next day he had died and he, we never get his answer or St. Augustine's answer on where does the soul originate from. Now, we don't, that's, that's the story, that's the end of Anselm. Beloved guy, super towering figure of church history, one of the most important men of this era and certainly a really important person. But we mentioned it at the top of this episode, we do not normally do this but we do want to caveat the sermon. I hope you listen to it and enjoy it. I hope you get something from it. But if this is your first episode of Revive Studios, maybe you've never listened to another episode before. You clicked Anselm because it's a name you heard from church history or you're a big fan of his. I, caveat in here. Do not let this be the only sermon of our studio that you listen to. It's going to give you a really weird impression of what we do here. Um, <laughs> it, it, he's very allegorical. He uses lots of images and he says things I think personally maybe aren't 100% backed up by the text. Why do we want you to listen to a sermon that's so wonky? A, it's the way it was preached back then. It's interesting for you to hear that and to historically see like this used to be a very popular thing. Personally, it made me appreciate that we don't preach like that anymore. Um, but also, it is incredible that as you get through it until you get to the end of it, you still walk away encouraged because even though he's doing a lot of things I think that are wrong hermeneutically speaking, and from a Bible reading perspective, I don't think that's what you're supposed to do, yet he's still proclaiming the name of Christ and you still walk away from it going, yeah, but man, he really loved Jesus. You can really see how highly he thought of God. He may have done things with the Bible that I wouldn't necessarily want to do or want my pastor to do down the street, but I really appreciate how big God was in Anselm's mind and how huge Jesus Christ was. And he shows that in this sermon, that even though it's different than what I would like to listen to normally, it, you still walk away encouraged seeing like, wow, that, that monk from you know the early 1100s, the late 11th century, he was preaching God. And that's why I think he was so beloved during his age. Matthew 14, 22, and immediately Jesus had his disciples get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. In this selection, according to its spiritual interpretation, we have a summary description of the state of the church waiting for the coming of the Savior to the end of the world. For the Lord forced his disciples to get into a ship when he committed the church to the government of the apostles and their followers, and so they are to go before him to the other side. That is, to endure onwards toward the safety of the celestial country. They are to do this before he himself should entirely depart from the world, for with his elect and on account of his elect, he forever remains here until the end of all things. And he is preceded to the other side of the sea of this world by those who daily pass from the land of the living. And when he has sent all that are his to that place, then leaving the multitude of the lost and no longer warning them to be converted, he gives them over to perdition." And he will depart from here, that he may be with his elect only in the kingdom. You see, it is said, while he sent the multitude away. For in the end of the world, he will send away the multitude of his enemies, that they may then be hurried by the devil to everlasting damnation. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up in a mountain apart to pray. He will not send away the multitude of the Gentiles until the end of the world, but he did dismiss the multitude of the Jewish people at the time when, as Isaiah says, 
he commanded his clouds that they should rain no rain upon it. So therefore he sent away that multitude and went up into a mountain. He went to the height of the celestial kingdom, of which it had been written, Who will ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who will rise up in his holy place? For a mountain is a height, and what is higher than heaven? There the Lord ascended. And he ascended alone, for no man has ascended up into heaven save he that came down from heaven, the Son of Man which is now in heaven. And even when he will come at the end of the world and will have collected all of us, the members of his body together, and will raise us into heaven, he will also ascend alone. Because Christ, the head, is one with us into the mountain, that is, to the height of the celestial kingdom, of which it is the body. But now the head alone ascends, the mediator of God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He goes up to pray because he went to the Father to intercede. For Christ has not gone into the holy places made with hands, which are shadows of the true, but into heaven itself. He now appears in the presence of God for us. The verse continues, And when the evening came, he was there alone. The evening signifies the nearness of the end of the world, concerning which John also speaks, Little children, it is the last days. Therefore it is said that when the evening came, he was there alone. Because when the world was drawing to its end, he by himself, as the true high priest, entered into the holy of holies, and is there at the right hand of God, and also makes intercession for us. But while he prays on the mountain, the ship is tossed with waves in the deep. For the waves arise, and the ship is tossed, but since Christ prays, it cannot be overwhelmed, for it follows. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, and tossed with waves, because the wind was terrible." The ship is the church, and the sea is this world. The waves of the sea are the swellings and tribulations of the world, or the agitations of temptation. The contrary wind is the violence of devils by which the powers of this world are stirred up against the church. And the world is frequently stirred up against the saints. And by the world, vices and sins are always suggested. The ship was tossed with waves in the midst of the sea while Jesus was standing on the top of the mountain. For from the time that the Savior ascended into heaven, the holy church is attacked by great tribulations in this world. And she is driven with the various whirlwinds of persecution. She is vexed by the depravity of wicked men and tempted in every possible way with sins. For the wind was terrible because the blast of evil spirits are always opposed to her so that in the end she may not attain the heaven of salvation. They seek to overwhelm her with the waves of this world's challenges and are exerting against her all the troubles which it can bring to pass. The verse continues. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Since the night has twelve hours and four military watches, three hours being comprehended in each watch, the fourth watch is the end and darkest part of the night. But night signifies the darkness of tribulation and errors and vices and the dangers of temptation. In the fourth watch, then, of the night, that is the worst of persecution. In the worst of persecution, which had long been severe under pagan kings or towards the end of every heavy challenge, Jesus came to his own. And he comes walking upon the sea, treading on all the waves of tribulation. He is trampling underfoot all the swellings of this world and overcoming all its high thoughts. For what can we understand by the sea except the bitterness of the world, which satisfies its rage by the slaughter of the good? On the waves of the sea, the Lord walks, because when the storm of persecution lift themselves up, they are broken by the wonders of his miracles. 
For he that calms the swelling of human madness stamps down the waves when they gather together as moving mountains. For when the Gentiles perceived that their customs were destroyed by the preaching of a new manner of life, and when the rich of this world understood that the deeds of the poor were greater than theirs, when the wise of this world understand that the words of the unlearned were opposed to them, they all swelled into a hurricane of persecution. But those who were struck by the teaching of Jesus' words to form such a storm were brought low in their wonder at the miracles he performed. The Lord planted as many of his footsteps on these waves as he exhibited miracles to those proud persecutors. It continues, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear as Jesus passed by walking on the waves. And yet there are temptations so great that even those who have believed in Jesus and who strive to persevere, even to the end, are often troubled and afraid. When Christ is walking upon the waves, that is, Christians fear when he is stopping the ambitions and lofty thoughts of the world. Rightly, it is said that the disciples feared when he was walking on the sea, because Christians, although they have set their hope on the world to come, when they see the lofty things of this world destroyed, are sometimes troubled about the destruction of human greatness. Neither do they think that it is brought to pass by God, but often by the enemy. They are troubled, saying, It is a spirit because they perceived that the glory of this world was overthrown, and the height of secular humanity was cast down. Then all of a sudden Peter came down out of this ship. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. This was fulfilled, and still is fulfilling, how holy preachers are sent to the heathen nations. For Peter comes down out of the ship as often as any holy man descends from the heart of the church where he has been educated, And then he goes with pious sympathy to them that are without the church, that he may show them the way of salvation. And he walks upon the water while he both conquers and tramples on temptations, and while he subdues to himself the multitudes by causing them to believe in Christ. Walks, I say, and not stands, because he is forever and entirely forgetting the things which are behind, and more and more reaching to those things which are before, advancing in the daily increase of his virtues, and all these things he does, that he may come to Jesus, the Savior and the immutable truth, so that laying hold of him and keeping close to him, he may possess in him true salvation and immutability. It follows, But when he saw the wind so noisy, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Matthew 14.30 The loud wind is the powerful force of evil spirits to stir up the hearts of men and make them restless in the persecution of the faithful, or they might attempt to seduce them to evil. And that wind will be noisy and howl when Satan in the last days will be let loose in his full strength against the righteous. And this appears now to be spoken of in this sentence in which Peter, who symbolizes these preachers, is related to having feared when he saw the wind so strong. For who, even among those that are perfect, will not fear when that savage persecution rages everywhere under Antichrist? And when he fears, he will sink a little, because on account of the horror of the torments which will be inflicted on the saints, and from his shock at the deceiving signs which will be done by the followers of Antichrist, he will struggle in his heart a little." and maybe in the baser part of his mind, give way to thoughts that unless the hand of Christ raises him, he may easily be altogether overwhelmed by these tricks. But because he is elect, he will cry to Christ, Lord, save me, and so by his help he will be raised up. 
For then there will be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. And no, it will never be like this again. And unless those days had been shortened, there would be no flesh that was saved. Except for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, 21 and 22. And so it follows. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? For the Savior quickly stretches his hand of help to each of those that are his, because he will not suffer them to be tempted above what they are able to bear. And he will quickly catch them, that is, will hold them and lift him up by a certain power of divine assistance. O you of little faith, says he, why did you doubt? Whose faith will not be shaken in that tribulation when the martyr pours out his blood for Christ? Let us consider then, what will be that temptation of the human soul? For whose courage will not be shaken to its depths when he who tortures cruelly is the same one performing miracles? For with such sin and deceit the Antichrist and his ministers will be let loose against the righteous. Even the hearts of the blessed will be struck with a real fear of them, for it is written, Insomuch that, if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Matthew twenty four twenty four, Which we must understand to be said, not because the elect can fall, but because they will tremble with great terror as if they were about to fall. We may notice also that this commotion of the waves and tottering or half-sinking of Peter takes place even in our own times according to the spiritual sense. For every man's own sin is the hurricane. You love God. You walk upon the sea. The swellings of this world are under your feet. You love the world and it swallows you up. Its desire is to devour, not to lift up its lovers. But when your heart fluctuates with the desire of sin, you must call on the divinity of Christ and you may conquer that desire. You think that the wind is against you when the adversity of this world rises against you, and not also when its prosperity falls upon you. For when wars, when tumults, when famine, when pestilence comes, when any private calamity happens, even to individual men, then the wind is thought against us, and then it is considered best to call upon God. But when the world smiles with temporary happiness, then we forget and think the wind is not against us. Do not, by such moments as these, judge the peace of the time, but judge it by your own temptations. See if you are at peace within yourself. See if no internal storm is overwhelming you. It is a proof of great virtue to struggle with happiness so that it will not seduce you and corrupt or subvert you. Learn to trample on this world. Remember to trust in Christ. And if your foot is moved, if you totter, if there are some temptations that you cannot overcome, if you begin to sink, cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. In Peter, therefore, the common condition of all of us is to be considered, so that if the wind of temptation endeavors to upset us in any manner or its gusts to swallow us up, we may cry to Christ. He will stretch out his hand and preserve us from sinking into the deep. And it follows, And when he came into the ship, the wind ceased. Matthew fourteen thirty two. On the last day he will ascend into the ship of the church, because then he will sit upon the throne of his glory, which throne may not unfairly be understood as the church. For he who by faith and good works now and always dwells in the church will then by the manifestation of his glory enter into it. And then the wind will cease." because evil spirits will no longer have the power of sending out against it the flames of temptation or the commotions of troubles, for then all things will be in peace 
and at rest. It follows, Then they that were with him in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truly you are the Son of God. Matthew 14.33 They who remain faithfully in the church amidst the storm of temptations will approach him with joy, and entering into his kingdom with him will worship him, and praising him perpetually will affirm him of a truth to be the Son of God. Then also that will happen which is written concerning the elect raised from the dead. All flesh will come and will worship before my face, says the Lord. Isaiah 66, 23. And again, blessed are they that dwell in your house. They will be always praising you. Psalm 84, 4. For him, with whom their heart they believe to have righteousness, and with their mouth confess to salvation, him they will see with their heart brought to the light. And with their mouth they will praise his glory when they behold how perfectly he is begotten of the Father, with whom he lives and reigns in the unity of the Holy Ghost, God to all ages and of all ages. Amen. So yeah, that sermon, definitely different than the normal style of sermons that we like. You know, we obviously like the text to be front and center. He's doing things with it, talking about Jesus, you know, walking on water and the water of the nations of the earth and all these things. But you can definitely tell, again, I said it as we were going into the sermon. I'll say it again. You can really tell that Anselm loved God, that he saw God as this really big, strong, you know, he saw him through his attributes as he prayed the attributes in some of his books. He saw those things about God and really put God on a high plane and looked at us, his church, as, you know, members coming closer to him as people he cared about. I think that comes through in his sermon really well. I think we we can learn from that, if nothing else, that even though people from very different places from us, from very different perspectives from us sometimes, still are looking at the same God, still looking at the same Jesus, and um, and proclaiming his name, and that we can be grateful for, even if we necessarily wouldn't want to do that that same way today. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ken Chipchase. Ken is the planting pastor of Pillar Fellowship in southern Indiana, and he's the co-host of the Do Theology podcast. Uh, We love uh, Ken and Jeremy over at Do Theology. They've been on some of our trivia nights in the past. uh, And if you want to listen to a podcast that uh, is centered around theological discussion and talk, they do a great job at that. So you can uh, learn more at dotheology.com. If you are not currently wearing your Revised Studios All My Heroes Are Dead shirt, what are you waiting for? Get over there at the RevisedStudios.com merch store. Go merchant sh- merchandise shop and go get that All My Heroes Are Dead shirt because otherwise, what are you wearing? I can only imagine it's a lesser shirt or maybe a shirt representing martyrs and missionaries. Those have been people have been buying those up. But make sure you're checking yeah, out our Troy, shop. Let's buy Let's it put ourselves. a link to that shirt in the in the show notes here. Absolutely. That way people can, you just just look in the show notes of this episode. You can click right on through Boom. to the All My Heroes Are Dead shirt. That way you have one that way the next time you're listening to this show as you're going about your life maybe you're at the gym or you're working out of course hopefully you're not getting that shirt sweaty you know you've got another shirt underneath or something but making sure (laughs) that you are going through life enjoying this show uh also if we mentioned it in this episode gotta mention again if you are not listening to the deep dives if you've not gone to patreon if you have not listened the first crusade you can check out the previews are in the revive thoughts feed but we really highly recommend those are some great episodes go join us on patreon every dollar helps make the studio better helps us to create more podcasts and do even more things than we already are doing and 
those also go into um, allows you the access to those deep dive episodes where we put together these really long episodes in church history. I am right now cranking out. It's a really tough subject, but I'm getting through a really interesting deep dive that I cannot wait uh, to bring to you all soon. So that's what we're working on now. And yeah, we definitely hope you can join us on Patreon and listen to those. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.